story of a uh, 18th century British minister who was quite, he was very dry, he was preaching his sermons and was not yet a believer. And partway through one of his own sermons, he came, became convicted of what he was preaching. And one of the elders in the congregation stood up and said, the parson's been converted. And the whole congregation started cheering and shouting and clapping. I think they had all recognized that he was an unconverted man. Uh, and finally, I mean, he was excited too. And so finally he silenced the congregation and they sung the doxology and they left. And that was the end of the service. But from that point forward, he had quite a fruitful ministry. But even the minister standing at the pulpit is no sure assurance that you really do believe. So those first two points from last week, that Christ has made a way for us to have peace with God and that by his Holy Spirit our eyes are open to believe. That is square one. That's the starting point, the foundation. You've got to get your head around that before everything else that follows. But once Jesus has declared peace and he's opened his disciples' eyes, then he commissions them. So we're going to pay a special attention to the second part of the passage this morning, but I'm going to read the whole passage, Luke 24, 36 through 52. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Then they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. What I want us to see this morning is that Jesus equips his disciples for their mission and he gives them hope for their mission as he ascends to his throne. First, Jesus equips his followers. He equips his followers. Whatever we're doing, we want to be well equipped. Humans are tool-making creatures and so we like tools. If you're getting ready for fishing season, you may well have a dog-eared Bass Pro Shop catalog in your bathroom, you know, circled new reels, new trolling motor, whatever it is you need. Hunting season comes up, maybe it's the Cabela's catalog. If you're a hiker, a new tent, a new sleeping bag might shave half a pound off your pack. Think about how much more miles you could cover. The list is endless. The latest forks or handlebars for our bike, the latest bindings for our skis, whatever it is. 
there's a joke that the formula for how many bikes you need is x plus 1, where x is the number of bikes you currently have. It's always one more. I suppose, Tom, probably the same could be said of guitar pedals. That one, you know, x plus 1. That, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's not just our recreations, though. Uh, we're getting ready to build a chicken coop, and I was saying to my wife this week, you know, a, a nail gun sure would be nice and help things to go quicker on this project. So I uh, end up spending money on an air compressor and a nail gun just to build a chicken coop. Uh, it's easy to do. Car work, a floor jack, a pneumatic wrench makes it all easier. We like to be well equipped. Well, in verses 46 through 49, Jesus equips his followers with four resources for the life and mission of the church. Four resources. First, Jesus equips his followers with a biblical theology. You see in verse 46, he begins, Thus it is written. Thus it is written. The church's theology, uh, theology is just a big word for what we believe about God and everything in relation to God. The church's theology should not be based on speculation, rational arguments, or imagination. Of course, trying to think well about God does use our reason and our imagination. In fact, it pushes them to the very limits. But the foundation for our theology, the basis for what we believe about God, the world, and ourselves, is what God has revealed to us in his word. And so the church's theology should be a biblical theology, and therefore it should begin, thus it is written. It's our starting point. Last week, we saw Jesus showing his disciples that everything written about him in the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the whole Old Testament, that it all must be fulfilled. Here in verse 46 and 47, Jesus unpacks what that means. Scripture points, Jesus says, to three necessary components of God's plan. Jesus doesn't point here to individual verses that are fulfilled, saying, I fulfilled you know, Isaiah 7 and Psalm 111 and whatever those individual verses are, saying the whole of Scripture is fulfilled. And so what he points to is a basic, pervasive pattern of faithful, costly obedience to God and then ultimate vindication. Faithful, costly obedience to God and ultimate vindication. Even if you think in those terms, Almost at random, Abraham, faithful, costly obedience to God, following him into the wilderness, even prepared to offering up his own son, and yet at the end is vindicated. Joseph, faithful to God, even to the point of prison, it's costly, vindicated in the end. You can go down the list. David refuses to strike Saul. It's faithful, costly obedience, and yet is ultimately vindicated. You see these three components here. He first says, it's necessary that the Christ should suffer. Suffer is Luke's shorthand for Christ's passion and death. The arrest, beatings, and trials of Maundy Thursday. The crucifixion, death, and burial of Good Friday. The body in the tomb on Holy Saturday. None of these were a fluke. None of them caught Jesus off guard. He willingly endured what, in patient obedience in order to make peace between God and and humanity, to reconcile this broken relationship between the Creator and His creatures. The second component, though, it's not just that the Christ must suffer, but also it was necessary that on the third day He must rise from the dead. If Christ only suffered and stayed in the grave, what would be the basis for our faith? How would we know that His work had indeed 
been finished. But Christ's resurrection is the foundation for our faith. It's proof that Christ has indeed fulfilled the law, the prophets, the Psalms. It's proof that his work is finished, that peace has been made. Indeed, that death itself has been conquered. And then he says there's a third component. It's also necessary that repentance and forgiveness for sins should be proclaimed in his name. This third necessary component of God's plan points beyond Jesus' mission to the mission of the church. It's good news that must be proclaimed. We'll come back to this in just a moment. But first, I want to drive this point home. The church's first resource is a biblical theology. And so our theology must be biblical. What we believe about God, the world, and ourselves must be based on the Bible, not our own intuitions. But being equipped with a biblical theology also means that our theology should be a whole Bible theology. Jesus doesn't cherry-pick a few verses from the New Testament and say, this is the basis for my theology. No, he says the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of Israel's scripture, and in a moment he's going to say the apostolic witness in the New Testament, all of that is necessary. Each part of the Bible informs our theology. So our theology should both be based on the Bible and the whole Bible should inform it. The church's biblical theology, as it were, is our map and our food. It orients us. It makes sense of our world. It gives us direction. But it also feeds us, sustains us, and fills us. And so the ministry of the word is central to the church's mission. Second, Jesus then equips his followers for an evangelistic program or with an evangelistic program. See in verse 47, Jesus' own mission that he needed to suffer and then rise again continues through the church. It was necessary that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The work of Christ is accomplished on the cross, but by the Holy Spirit it is applied through the proclamation of the church. Jesus' mission continues through the church, or the other way around. The church's work piggybacks on Christ's own work. It's not a separate second thing. So the early apostles developed this rich image of the church as being the body of Christ in the world, making Christ present in the midst of the world, continuing his work of faithful, costly obedience, proclaiming the good news of what he has accomplished. The good news is this. Unlike all the leaders that we know who use power for their own good, here at last is a king who died for our sins to bring peace with God. Luke says there's two parts of the proclamation. One is repentance. It's a call for a definitive break with the past, with old ways of life, a reorientation. So there's repentance, saying I'm going to go a different way from now on. And yet we can repent, we can go a different way, and we still have baggage in the past. Uh, you know, maybe we, we say, I'm going to do something different in life. I'm going to start out on a new way, so I'm going to move to a different state and leave behind arrest warrants and all sorts of things in this state. Okay, that baggage isn't dealt with simply by repenting. But there's two parts, both repentance and the forgiveness of sins. All the past baggage is also dealt with. Luke and his gospel isn't as explicit as other New Testament writers about how Christ's death made an atonement. 
But remember how Luke began his gospel. He said, others have already undertaken to write about the things that have been accomplished among us. The letters, Paul's letters are already out. I don't need to re-say what Paul said. Paul masterfully argues how the cross works our salvation. What I'm going to tell you is about the details of Jesus' life. But just as surely as Paul believes that Christ's work on the cross brings forgiveness of sins, so does Luke. Forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus' name. This is how forgiveness is possible. Who is the target of this evangelistic program? See what it says there at the end of Luke 47, or in the middle, I guess. It should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's not limited to any specific ethnic group or culture. It's for all nations. It's good news for everyone. In the late 18th century, uh, at a meeting of Reformed Baptists in England, the young William Carey argued for setting up a mission society to proclaim the good news in India. And an older minister actually stood up and interrupted him. And he said to William Carey, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathens, he'll do it without consulting you or me. It's a sad moment in the history of the Reformed Church when this elder minister said, God, if he wanted to save the heathens, he wouldn't bother us. Do it on his own. He had grossly misunderstood the church's mission. But Carey understood this evangelistic program that Christ has given to the church. He understood the call to participate in Jesus' ongoing mission in the world. And so at the first meeting of this mission society that he went and set up anyways, he preached, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And then within months, he set off to India where he ministered for the next 40 years without returning home proclaiming the good news. This evangelistic program is central to the church as an institution, but in Luke here, Jesus is addressing his followers as individuals. He's saying it needs to be proclaimed. If you've grasped this good news, it needs shared with others. Jesus equips his followers with a biblical theology, an evangelistic program, and with third, apostolic authority. Not only the repentance of sins is proclaimed, but Jesus continues saying, beginning from Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. We see two important things here going on. First, in the Old Testament, there's various promises that the nations are going to come to Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, for example, in the latter days, the Lord's house shall be established as the highest among mountains and many people shall flow to it, all the nations. They'll say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain. But there's a shift of emphasis now. In the Old Testament, it seems to be a centripetal coming to Jerusalem from all over the earth. But now it's a centrifugal sending out. You will be my witnesses beginning from Jerusalem, and then as Luke puts it in the beginning of Acts, to all Judea, Samaria, and indeed to the ends of the earth. As it were, the Lord's house is being brought to all of the nations. So beginning in Jerusalem. But the second part is that you are my witnesses of these things. The church is founded not on hearsay, but on apostolic authority. That's a mouthful. Why why am I using that mouthful? Well, in the Nicene Creed, we confess we believe in one holy apostolic church. What does that mean when we confess that? 
Some churches, like the Roman Catholic Church, claim to be apostolic because there's supposedly an unbroken chain of laying on of hands at ordination from Peter all the way down to the current pope and through him to all their various ministers or priests around the world. Um, that may or may not be the case. I don't really have a dog in that fight, whether there was a break in that chain of hands being laid on. But when we confess that we believe in an apostolic church, it doesn't mean we believe in an external continuity. Rather, to confess an apostolic church is to say that the church is founded on the witness of the apostles. The New Testament contains the apostles' own witness, and the New Testament as a whole is corroborated by the witness of these apostles who were with Jesus during his life and who were eyewitnesses to his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Do you realize how reliable this is? If only Mary or Jesus had seen the risen Jesus and then went back and convinced others, we could say, well, you know, maybe they were deluded. But that is certainly not the case. Here in the passage we're reading, it's at least the 11 plus Cleopas and another disciple. So there's at least 13 people, uh, but it, even more, those who are gathered together. It's a large group of people that all saw the resurrected Jesus. At this point, there's 11 apostles, but when the early church in Acts 1 decides to replace Judas, there's a number of possible candidates who had all been with Jesus through his whole life, seen him die, and seen him rise again. So it's not just these 12. Indeed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point, 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. It is a large group of people that all attest to the same truth. They all agree. There are later splits in church history, but they come hundreds of years later. In this initial period, while those who knew Jesus in life and saw his resurrection were alive, during that period that those witnesses were alive, there was no fundamental agreement or disagreement about the basic facts. Everyone, 500 and more, who had seen the resurrected Jesus were all in agreement. No one wrote a letter saying actually what they said was not true. It, they all agree. In contrast, to see how remarkable this is, in the year that Muhammad died, there was a fundamental split, months after his death, between those who believed that Muhammad had designated an heir to take his place and those who believed that there could be no heir to Muhammad. And so the split between Sunni and Shia Muslims that is still going on today ultimately goes back to events immediately following Muhammad's death. There are eventually splits in the Christian church, but there's fundamental agreement, even today, on the basics. Even the split between the Orthodox churches in the East and the Western churches is over one word in the Nicene Creed. Apart from that, we agree on the entire Nicene Creed, Christians all over the world. Okay, so that's what apostolic authority means, is that it's based on the witness of the New Testament, of the apostles. Fourth, Jesus equips his followers with spiritual power. Look, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It foreshadows the day of Pentecost, which is, uh, we'll celebrate in early June this year, when the early church is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus equips his followers, finally, by giving them his own spirit. And so our proclamation of the good news, our work as a church, even our reading of the Bible, is not by our own power, but by the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, is typically called the Acts of the Apostles, or traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles. And it tells how the apostles went about doing the work that they were given. But it really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the book of Acts shows the Holy Spirit empowering, leading, and working through the church to continue Christ's work and to establish his kingdom throughout the Roman world. In the creeds, what we believe about the church, baptism, forgiveness of sins, it all follows from the initial confession, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. So finally, this fourth truth shows that there's a basic Trinitarian pattern to the life of the church. Jesus the Son says he will send God the Spirit, who is promised by God the Father, to empower the church, to give witness to God the Son, to the glory of God the Father. The spiritual power is fundamental for the church's work, and we can fill it out if we look at the rest of the New Testament. I'm not going to read all these verses, but the Spirit enlightens us, Paul tells us in Ephesians. It regenerates us, Jesus tells us in John's Gospel. The Holy Spirit leads us to holiness, Paul tells us in Romans, transforms our lives, 2 Corinthians tells us so that we will bear fruit, as Paul tells us in Galatians. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance of peace with God and gives gifts for the ministry of the church, as Paul spells out in 1 Corinthians 12. God's work in us as individuals and as a church is done through his Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first truth that I wanted you to see this morning is that Jesus equips his followers with a biblical theology, an evangelistic program, apostolic authority, and spiritual power. The second truth that we need to see is that Jesus ascends to his throne. Jesus ascends to his throne, and that gives us hope for the mission set before us. Here we look at verses 50 through 53. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. In Acts 1, Luke tells us that there were actually 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But here he telescopes. He cuts the two stories so that they're side by side or cuts straight ahead to the, to the end 40 days later. Why does he do that? Well, it's to emphasize that there is one continuous movement from the depths of the grave up to the heights of glory. Luke describes here, in fact, a twofold movement. First, Christ parted from them, or he went away from them. And second, he was taken up into heaven. So Jesus literally goes up and away. But heaven's not literally above us. Rather, that direction is the most fitting picture for the underlying reality that Christ is exalted as he ascends to his throne. In fact, there's three components of Christ's ascension. Jesus is enthroned. That's what we say when we say Christ ascended. Jesus' human body now sits on a throne in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus is highly exalted. He's taken this position of authority as God the Father's right-hand man. Nevertheless, although Jesus is enthroned in heaven, he is also present with his church. 
So in Matthew's parallel account of Jesus' commissioning, Jesus promises disciples, his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. In his humanity, Jesus could not be present with every church this Sunday morning around the world. His body is limited, like our bodies. But Jesus' humanity now ascended into heaven through his divinity, through his Holy Spirit, he can be present with his church the world over. So in one sense, the ascension means Jesus' departure from us, and yet at the same time, it means he is even more fundamentally present with his followers than previously. That by his Spirit, he is able to dwell within us. And so Jesus' ascension to heaven is linked to sending the Holy Spirit. God can be present with his Holy Spirit. Third, Jesus' ascension is the sign not only that he is enthroned and that he is present, but that he now intercedes and intervenes on behalf of his church. Christ is seated on a throne to exercise his authority on behalf of his followers, for us. He departs with his hands lifted up, declaring a benediction. Luke says twice he lifted his hands to bless his followers, and while he was blessing them, he departed. It's as if Luke is driving the point home. This is Christ's ongoing work. He parts while blessing. His ongoing work is to pronounce blessing on his church. As the spiritual we sang a couple weeks ago puts it, he lives to bless me with his love. Glory, hallelujah. He lives to plead for me above. At his ascension, then, we see Jesus enthroned in heaven, interceding for his followers, and yet present through his Holy Spirit. How do the disciples respond? Last week we saw the disciples responded in four ways to Jesus appearing in their midst. They were startled, they thought they saw a ghost, doubts arose, and then they disbelieved for joy. Now again we see four parallel responses to Jesus departing from their midst. First, Luke says they worshipped Jesus. In all of Luke's gospel, 24 chapters, this is the first time that anyone worships Jesus. Israel's scriptures teach that God alone is worthy of worship. These disciples, raised as good Jews, would have been taught this from the cradle. God alone is worthy of worship. And now, these disciples worship Jesus Christ. Why? It's finally all clicked for them. They finally recognize that Jesus shares in the divine identity, that God himself had come to his people in the man Jesus. That Jesus, along with God, is worthy of worship. If Jesus' basic posture is blessing his disciples, his followers, then us as followers, our basic posture is worshiping Jesus. Second, they obey Jesus. Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, and they promptly obey. They return to Jerusalem. Third, as they go, they are full of great joy. Luke's painting a reversal for us here. A few verses earlier, when Jesus first appeared in their midst, they disbelieved for joy. It's too good to be true. But now as Jesus departs, they return boldly to the city where Jesus was just killed, worshiping him and full of joy. Can you imagine, uh, this is the city that had just killed their Lord, and now they go back worshiping him as a god. They're taking a great risk even on themselves. 
Fourth, the very last word in all of Luke's gospel is that the disciples are blessing God. That's how it ends, blessing God. All of this, everything that's happened in Luke's gospel, from his birth to his death to his resurrection to his ascension, it is all to the glory of God. So they're continually in the temple blessing God. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we didn't look at it at Christmas, but Jesus is presented in the temple as an infant, and he's greeted by an old man named Simeon, and Luke tells us there in Luke chapter two, in chapter 2, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Luke's gospel begins right after Jesus' birth with an old man, Simeon, blessing God in the temple. And now Luke ends his gospel having come full circle. Now it's not just this one man, Simeon, and this one woman, Anna, but a band of disciples, Jesus' followers, all together, continually in the temple, blessing God. Now Jesus' followers can say, like Simeon, your servants can depart in peace. We have true peace with God. Our eyes have seen your salvation that has been prepared in the presence of all people. Jesus' disciples can say, indeed, this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that it's going out through Jesus' disciples to the glory of God. These particular disciples then provide a picture of discipleship generally. If this all clicks for us, if we recognize who Christ is, what he has done for us, how he has equipped us and is sending us out, we respond to our ascended Lord who lives to bless by worshiping, obeying, filled with joy, and blessing God. Let's pray together. Good and loving Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that you have given to your church, how you have equipped us. Here we've touched on four of these ways that you have equipped your church for your work. And we've only touched on them briefly. We, much more could be said about each of these. But we ask that once again, even looking at this overview, we would be challenged as your people to live fully to the glory of God. May we use these resources you have given to us to proclaim faithfully the good news that Christ is risen indeed, that there is now peace with God. May we, like these disciples, be bold in our worship, in our obedience, in our joy, and in blessing you. By your Holy Spirit, power from on high, be at work in our midst, even this morning. Amen.